Today's reading is from Mark chapter 11. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied by a door. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They answered them just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. They brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus replied to them, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. They came again to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and the elders came and asked him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things.
Well, good morning. Great to be with you this morning. Uh, we continue in our look at Mark's Gospel, and this one has been one of, uh, to my surprise, one of my favourite chapters uh, in Mark so far. And uh, look, to continue with uh, a bit of theme of interactivity um, that we sort of had a go at at the beginning of the service, let, let's continue. I've got, I've, I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine uh, someone's knocked on my door and, uh, and I'm going to give them a welcome and I want you to tell me kind of who I might be welcoming, the kind of person I might be welcoming, right? Uh, so for instance, mate, how are you? Come on in. Take a seat. Good to see you. Who am I welcoming? An Aussie? An Aussie, definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A friend, a friend, yes, yes. What about this one or this one? It's open. Come on in. Yeah, family. Can't even bother to go into the front door. What about this one? Not interested, thanks. <laughs> Salesman, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. What about this one? I'd be very happy to talk, but I also have a question for you. Have you accepted Jesus as your personal saviour? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, any number. I've had a Hare Krishna on my door the other day. But anyway, how we welcome people shows something about ourselves, like you know, in the Aussie example, uh, and how we honour that particular person. So it shows us something about ourselves and the way we think of other people. Welcoming is a beautiful thing. And I must say, I've particularly enjoyed uh, subby hospitality. Oh my goodness, every time I get invited to an Indian or Sri Lankan person's house, I come back well-fed, feeling very honoured and very fussed over. It's a beautiful thing. How would you welcome a king? How would you welcome a king? Now, uh, we've already had reference to kind of the Queen's coronation. Uh, and Matt, this is kind of, this is a picture of, I don't know what it's a picture of, to be honest, some kind of royal fanfare. Uh, I went back and looked at Queen Elizabeth's coronation, which is kind of like a welcoming of, of, from a nation, uh, from a commonwealth of the incoming uh, sort of sovereign. In adjusted dollars, that coronation service of Queen Elizabeth cost $46 million. That is some welcome, right? What about the King of Kings? How do you welcome the King of Kings, the Messiah, Jesus Christ? How might He be welcomed into the jewel of Israel, that is Jerusalem? Well, we have the answer to that uh, in Mark 11. I've called this this sermon, Welcome and Worship the King of All Nations. That's what we see in, in this chapter, and we're going to be walking through a bunch of sort of There's some sections that are strange, aren't there? We're going to sort of look at how all of that points to this picture of how we are to welcome and worship the King of all nations. But instead of seeing the King of all nations being welcomed in some $46 million fanfare, we see Him being welcomed on a donkey. It is a strange scene, isn't it? It is... It's ridiculous. Like, you can imagine people scratching their heads as to what's going on, or perhaps even kind of like the onlookers from the, from the Roman guard sort of saying, what, what, what is this guy? What are, what, what are they doing to him? Uh, but there, there were some symbolic cultural things part of this, but there was also deep, deep Old Testament prophetic fulfillment uh, in this scene as well. Uh, This picture, this painting, is actually from the inside of the Church of Bethphage, which is is where this is situated. So right now, you could go to the church and see this painting at the back of it. This church is hundreds of years old, built on a church that was thousands of years old, built on some rubble before that. But it it is a captivating picture as Jesus 
tells his disciples, he sets his own agenda here. He's not sort of having some uh, master of ceremonies organize his welcome. He organizes it himself as he tells his disciples, go and find a donkey. If anyone's got issue, tell them the Lord needs it. And that's what happens. He hops on this donkey, this colt, this young, young donkey. And as he rides into Jerusalem, people lay down clothes, they lay down leafy branches, in John's Gospel very specifically, palm branches, hence Palm Sunday, and they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Now, why are they laying down palm branches? And I mean, maybe they didn't have any red carpet, but palm branches particularly meant uh, a kind of a, a triumphal entry. So if we looked in our Bibles, and I do encourage you to have your Bibles open, uh, the NIV, people who have organised the NIV, have written at the top of chapter 11, the triumphal entry. And that's what happens when you're laying down palm trees, it's part of, of welcoming people in, of celebrating a triumph. What is this triumph? Well, as they sing out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David, Hosanna. They are welcoming in a king. They are welcoming in a, a new kingdom. For the Messiah, the Messiah, the one who uh, the whole Old Testament was pointing to, is in this one, this lowly king, this one who rides on a donkey. And it seems that some people have eyes to see that. And as we've seen through Mark's Gospel, not everyone sees what's going on in Jesus, and yet some do, and those that do pay homage to Him as they welcome and worship. Now, Hosanna uh, is a Hebrew word, it's actually a group of Hebrew words, and it comes from Psalm 118, and it means God saves. In fact, it even means kind of God, please save. It has an imperative built in, please save. It's a longing for salvation. It's a looking towards salvation in this lowly king that comes riding in on a donkey. But more than that, it's a very explicit fulfillment of a, of a, a prophetic book at the end of the Old Testament. Just a couple of, uh, if we went back through Mark, Matthew, Malachi, you get to Zechariah just before that. And it says this in Zechariah chapter 9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here we have the perfect fulfillment, the full fulfillment of that prophecy. For their king was not going to come as kind of a warrior king with great power, but to come lowly, servant-hearted, riding on a donkey. Now, sure, Jesus might have known of that prophecy, had it tucked up in his sort of back pocket. All right, today's the day I'm going to whip that out. I'll get myself a donkey and in I go. Sure. But as we look through Jesus' life, there are so many prophecies fulfilled that He couldn't just do that in. And so, again, we see God's sovereign hand over all things. Here is Jesus, the lowly king. But at the end of that little section, Mark just kind of just moves on. Like this is, this is a triumphal scene. And then he just says, he went to Jerusalem, into the temple, looked around at everything, and since it was late, he went back to Bethany. 
What, what I find interesting about the way Mark narrates things is Mark knew that this was the Messiah and this really was the triumphal entry. But he doesn't let that colour the way he presents what happens because he wants us to discover Jesus for who he is. He wants us to go on that journey. Martin, you know, we, what we're going to see is we're going to see this day and night thing, kind of like as, as it, in day Jesus heads into Jerusalem, uh, particularly the temple, at night he withdraws uh, back to Bethany, uh, just a short trip away. And uh, the next day, as Jesus heads out again, we come to this strange scene of a fig tree. That's not what I was looking for. Okay. I thought there was a slide for a fig tree. Is there? There we go. Excellent. The next day, this is verse 12, the next day when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went out, if, uh, uh, went to find out if there was anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. <laughs> Jesus having a bad day? What is happening here? Now, again, Mark consistently, as he tells this gospel to us, this good news of Jesus, he wants us to sort of see what's happening, but he also draws our attention to see a deeper meaning for things, just as Jesus tells parables. And in fact, I think this is an enacted parable. He's living out a parable that we might not just see a surface thing, but see what's happening underneath it. And part of our clue that there's more to see here is that Jesus knew, and Mark knew, it was not the season for figs. And so why is Jesus going up to a fig tree and getting all angry about it not bearing fruit when it wasn't even the season for it? Well, I think part of the clue here is he sees the fig tree in a distance. It looks like a fig tree. And as he gets closer, he finds that, what it, that there's a gap between the appearance and the reality. Now, even though it's not the season for fruit figs, he, he is helping us see, as he's about to walk into Jerusalem, that what looks like, what looks good at, on the front, actually has sinister stuff behind it. And Jesus will come in judgment upon that. He will reveal the hearts of nations, and he will judge accordingly. So it's not the fig tree's fault. Jesus is enacting a parable to help us see the disparity between what, what it looks like on the surface and what's happening in the heart and where he finds unfruitfulness from our hearts. What if, when he finds uh, our hearts not worshipping God, he will come in judgment. Now, that's what happens as he walks into, uh, into the temple. He marches straight in and he starts Throwing, uh, throwing out those buying and selling, he's overturning tables, he's straight into it. Now this kind of, sometimes this, this is what happens in our house as soon as the kids get up. Uh, is, is Jesus having a bad day? No, he's not having a bad day. He actually, he had planned for this because remember the day before, he had gone into Jerusalem, he had looked around, he had seen everything and that must have been a heartbreaking moment for him. Why? I'll come back to that, because perhaps uh, for some of us, oh, I see what I've done here, I've missed the slide, I've missed the slides up, go back to the, the temple picture without that. Excellent, excellent. Here is a picture of the second temple. Uh, the second temple was built after 
Uh, the Babylonians had, had raised the first temple to the ground, that, king, that temple of Solomon, a beautiful, one of, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, but it was destroyed as part of God's judgment upon Israel, but via the Babylonians. And uh, when they returned from exile, they rebuilt the temple, and then King Herod actually kind of helped them renovate it and make it even better. And this is what it looked like uh, in Jesus' time. We can see in the center of uh, that picture is the actual temple itself. And, and, and part of that is the, the Holy of Holies, that, that place where only the high priest could enter one time per year for the Day of Atonement. But outside, you see this, this large court with walls around it. That is the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles are welcome into, that is, people who are not, uh, not from Israel, not God's people. Uh, they're welcome in that court, but they're not allowed to go into the temple in the temple area. Now, inside that court area, uh, all kinds of things were happening. Uh, there, were, uh, there were tables where you could exchange your, your Roman denarii uh, into a shekel, and, and that shekel was used to pay the temple tax, uh, and that was kind of, uh, you know, spoken about in Exodus, and the shekel was the closest currency that was sort of accepted uh, as a temple tax there. But it was also a place to buy doves. So if you wanted to make a dove offering as part of your worship of God, uh, you could buy those in tables in the court of the Gentiles. Now, all of that seems quite reasonable and good, and even a way to facilitate and welcome uh, Gentiles and Jews into a space where they could worship God. So why is Jesus upturning these tables? What is wrong? We don't know apart from what Jesus says. We don't get access to His reasoning apart from what He says. So let's look at what He says. He says in verse 17, He was teaching them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now, when Jesus says here, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, He is drawing upon Isaiah 56, where, where that phrase is exactly used. It's a picture of, of kind of, a, of, of after a season of judgment, God would gather up His people of all nations and gather them to His house where people would pray and, and welcome Him and worship Him. It is a beautiful picture. It's a fulfillment of, of their promises made to Abraham, that Israel, that God's people, would be a blessing to all nations and welcome them in. But something is wrong. But, Jesus says, you have made it a den of thieves. And that's a quote from Jeremiah. So this is a, such a rich chapter drawing on the whole Old Testament story. This is what Jesus is accusing them of. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord." Jesus sees what's happening on the surface and it all looks rosy, it looks safe, it looks good, but He also sees straight into the heart, especially of the religious leaders that He's been railing against, particularly for their hypocrisy, all the way through the Gospels. People who worship God with their lips, but their hearts are far from God. And Jesus sees that. And he sees the way they're even profiteering and turning the, the court of Gentiles into a, a market economy 
that they might not just receive a tax according to Exodus, but might uh, profit themselves. And Jesus looks into all of that and he turns it all upside down. He says, what are you doing? You have, you have made this beautiful house of my Father, this house of prayer, into something that which is detestable. It's good for us to slow down and just see the character of Jesus here. Now we see in Jesus the full character of God. That's what Hebrews 1 tells us. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Now, Jesus is the lowly servant-hearted king that comes to Jerusalem on a donkey, but he is also the one who kind of shows a righteous anger. C.S. Lewis captures this in Narnia, uh, where um, it starts like this, Aslan is a lion, says the beaver. The lion, the great lion. Ooh, says Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I put on the English accent, right? Um, <laughs> I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That same word safe was used uh, in, in, uh, in the prophecy we've just drawn upon from Jeremiah. Do not make the assumption that God is safe as though you could domesticate him as though you could come to Him on your terms. But I'll tell you what, He is good. But when you presume upon Him, you don't find the meek and mild Jesus, you find a righteously angry Jesus. And what He is righteously angry here about is those that would dishonour and defame God's holy name, by turning that which was holy into something for themselves, instead of pursuing justice and mercy and a blessing for the nations. They had pursued a self-righteousness, a self-glorification, and they had dishonoured God accordingly. Now, from a fantastic little book, just to, just to dig into this a little bit further, called A Little Book on a Big Problem, Reflections on Anger, Comes, this little book has 50 days of meditation on anger. And can I say, there are people in this room, in this church, who have, and I don't, I'm not calling out particularly by name, but there will be people who have a serious problem with anger. There has to be. Uh, most of us, if not all of us, will struggle with anger in all kinds of various ways. Uh, you know, there's the, the, the moments that's kind of something happens, could be children, could be kind of, could be circumstance, could be job, uh, where anger flares up. This book walks through how, how Jesus speaks to anger, helps expose our anger. And drawing on this passage, this is what day 15 says, if you want to know God, know Jesus. Uh, sorry, know Jesus. He is the most comprehensive picture that God gives of Himself, and He did get angry. He was angry, and people were using the temple as a way to make a profit, thereby disrupting worship and showing disdain for His Father's house. Uh, it's also in John's Gospel and Matthew's. When other people's welfare was at stake, Jesus got angry. Here is how He is unlike us. He was never angry when He was personally violated. 
People tested him, accused him of being from the devil, betrayed him, denied him, brought false charges against him, spit on him, sought to heap shame on him and nailed him to a murderous cross. He never got angry because of his personal desires were being violated ever. Instead, the judge of the world gave his right to to judge over to his father. Now, what's important for us to notice here is that anger often masters us, but not in Jesus' case. Often, uh, often anger will stem from a right response to that which is not good, but we struggle to pursue that good in our loss of control because of anger. Jesus is able to use anger, not personally, which is the point here being made, But for the good of others, he's actually, in his mercy, being angry to show them that there is a great injustice, that there is something very not okay, there is something grievously wrong, and it's just not okay to be disappointed. (laughs) It is okay and righteous and good at times to be angry. But so often we are angry because of our personal feelings. We've been offended. That's not the case here. Jesus is angry because of how they are looking at God. Not worshipping Him, but worshipping themselves. Jesus will not stand by while God's people stand in the way of God's purposes. Now, Israel meant to be a blessing to the world. But they weren't. How do we get back on track? Jesus answers them. I will skip over a bit of the fig tree for a moment here. Verse 22, have faith in God. That's it. Instead of living a life of self-righteousness, have faith in God. Instead of dishonouring God, have faith in God. (laughs) This is what Jesus says when the disciples see that the fig tree has withered. Because a righteous judgment has taken place, he is calling them back to have faith in God. What joins us to God and his purposes, blessing and altogether life in him? Faith in God. And that faith is expressed in the enjoyment, intimacy, and power of prayer. Now, before I sort of finish this and head into the final part on prayer, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page, still together. Firstly, Jesus was welcomed and celebrated into Jerusalem as the triumphant servant king. Uh, We saw that Jerusalem was meant to be the center of worship, the temple, a house of prayer for all nations, but as a sign that things were not as they appeared and God's coming judgment, he cursed the fig tree as an enacted parable of the judgment he then began in upturning the uh, temple stalls. Now we see a call to faith and prayer, particularly a faith and prayer that moves mountains. They're confronting words that he gives us at the end, and at one level it seems like a bit disconnected, but let me show you. Verse 23, truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received and it will be yours. Now, if ever you wanted to preach a prosperity gospel, this would be it, right? And 
often the most dangerous truths are half-truths. And so for those that peddle a prosperity gospel, that is, you want wealth, pray for it, believe it, it will happen. There is a half-truth there, and here is something that really even suggests that that's all truth. But let's, uh, let's explore a bit what's happening here. There's a couple of ways we can uh, approach this as we see what is happening. Uh, the first one is to go back to Zechariah. Uh, what we see in Zechariah, uh, again, we've seen that's fulfilled already in Jesus coming on the cult, fold of a cult, um, cult of a fold, yeah, is chapter 14. On that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, exactly where they're standing right now. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with Him. And on that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem. Now, that particular chapter is a chapter of judgment and a chapter of salvation. And what we see is an upheaval of the land, even a splitting two of the Mount of Olives. And I think that when Jesus says, truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, this mountain, he, he, I think he's, he's standing on the Mount of Olives. He, he's saying, this mountain, something significant is going to happen to it. It could also be, as they stand in the, in sort of on, the, on the Mount of Olives, and here's, here's a picture of the Kidron Valley uh, that separates kind of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, the, the kind of the journey that Jesus has been taking day, uh, day and night in this whole chapter. It could also be Him pointing to the Temple Mount itself. Uh, it could be a way of Jesus speaking to how He will tear that down how He will rip the curtain when when He dies upon that cross, opening up the Holy of Holies and access so that all people would be welcomed into worship of the King of Nations. It could be a pointing towards the destruction of the temple itself, which was going to happen a couple of decades after Jesus says these words. But in either way, both Zechariah, or, or if it's a reference to the temple man itself, is a reference to God's salvation flowing out to all nations in a way that God had pointed to through the Old Testament, but had never come about because of the failure of Israel. But there is one who has faith. There is one who prays in such dependence upon the Father, that the Father's will is done through Him, and that is Jesus. I think as Jesus says these words, He's pointing to Himself as the prayerful, dependent child of the Father of God, God the Father. And as He prays these things, it will happen. Jesus will bring about a salvation that is extraordinary, that is all-surpassing, that is beyond everyone's imagination, that so many had missed. Now, I do think that Jesus is also calling us to a courageous power in prayer. He's not just pointing to Himself, He is going to perfect this but He is calling us to exercise the same dependency on God the Father. Because we now too, by virtue of Jesus bringing about this salvation, are children of God. Now, when we see extravagant promises like this, we might be quick to say, oh yeah, we'll just slap on if it's God's will at the end, just as a caveat in case kind of, you know, it doesn't happen, right? Well, that's again, that's a that's what Jesus does in, in, in the garden, just, just after this couple of chapters, we're going to look at Jesus praying, take this cup from me, but if it's your will. But 
I do, I do want us to not just put that in as a, as a caveat, as a kind of like, you know, as a, oh, you know, if it doesn't work out. <laughs> and, and often that caveat is expressed in a, actually a prayerlessness. Instead, and I'm running out of time here, let me go to one more book. This is called A Praying Life uh, by Paul, Paul Miller. There's a Gary Miller as well. But in that book, he looks at these extravagant promises that Jesus makes about prayer. And he looks at not just slapping on a, if it's your will, as a kind of, as a little disclaimer, as a, as a, as a, as a faithlessness even, but, but to a radical, courageous prayer of power. And, and he looks at kind of what's happening on either side of this, of this expression of humility and dependency on God. And he says, for those that are not asking, you, you need to, for those that are not praying prayers of power, uh, look to promises like this. Look to that invitation. Do ask boldly. But then he also looks at those who are asking selfishly. And this is where the kind of, if it's your will, is actually a call to align ourselves. He goes to James for that. And where James says, you do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. And so part of our prayer, courageous prayers of power, is to actually ask that God would align us to His will, that we might know Him more, that we might trust Him more. So do ask big things. Do be courageous in your prayers. And as you do so, ask that God would do a work in you. As we finish up here, as we've looked at this passage of, a, of how we have to welcome and worship the King of all nations, I want you to see what's actually been happening all through this. Because it's not just a call for us to welcome and worship the King of all nations. It's a description of how this lowly King welcomes us into His kingdom. He welcomes us with an embrace. He moves mountains for us. He moves the, the temple mount, as it were. He opens that up so that all might come into the intimacy of knowing God. He, he will upraise all mountains and lay them flat in His judgment and salvation for all. Friends, this is a God who has come lowly to be among us, to save us, to make the path straight so that we would find God again. Because here we have just such a clear case again that we on our own steam will fail. We'll turn everything of God's into something selfish. We will dishonor God given half the chance, but Jesus has now opened up the way. He welcomes us into the kingdom of all nations. And as we welcome Him, as we honor Him, we are saying, Hosanna. We are saying, please save. We are saying, thank you for our salvation, but now please save as we look to the nations. And as we look to the one who has come to make salvation known to them. So friends, as we meet around the table over lunch today, as we gather from different cultures, different ages... Let us recognize that it is God who has gathered us, for He is, Jesus is the King of all nations. And as we meet and enjoy that, may Jesus be at the center and at the center of our longing to see Him save many more. Let me pray. Father, as we come before You in prayer now, would You give us a strength and a courage and a faith that is able to come before You with big, asks, because you invite us 
to bring bold requests before you. Let us not doubt, but let us trust you and ask that you would do a work in us, making us more like Jesus. And we thank you for the way that you have worked in great power through him to make salvation available to all. Use us to this end, we ask, for your glory and for the salvation of many. Amen.